This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Westminster's Confession, The Abandonment of Van Til's Legacy by Gary North, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright Gary North, 1991. Chapter 8. Sic et Non. The Dilemma of Judicial Agnosticism. Quote, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. End quote. James 1, 5-8 Westminster's Theonomy Symposium suffers from the paralysis of indecision, an indecision rooted in theological and philosophical double-mindedness. Praising Van Til, they have abandoned Van Til. Criticizing Theonomy, they offer no alternative to Theonomy. Left to themselves as a faculty, they do not agree on the answer to that crucial practical question, what is to be done? They have attempted to do what no one should ever attempt, beat something positive with nothing specific. Indecision is a common academic affliction, but is especially noticeable on seminary faculties. The faculty members hesitate to speak prophetically and without qualifications. Quote, Thus saith the Lord, more or less, give or take a little, on the average, end quote. Is their battle cry against the pagan, apostate academic world that granted them their academic degrees and has accredited their programs, having been forced by the seminary's hiring policies to submit themselves for anywhere from seven to ten years to secular humanist higher education, B.A., M.A., Ph.D., they are not used to conducting offensive, head-on academic confrontations. They have been trained to lie low, to de-emphasize their unique Christian outlook. They have been trained to seek a common ground compromise. Van Til was an exception, but his precedent of total confrontation with humanism and philosophical autonomy has not been followed on campus at Westminster or anywhere else. Seminary faculty members do not choose to bite the hands that fed them their academic certification. They even seek out continuing approval from their covenantal enemies by submitting the seminaries to formal accreditation. They cannot deal with the idea that it is Christians, and only Christians, as the exclusive covenantal agents of God's kingdom in history, who are supposed to do the certifying. They cannot seem to shake loose a deeply rooted Christian inferiority complex, Quote, tell us that we meet your standards. We beg you. Tell us what to do, and we will do it. We know that your academic standards are entirely neutral, so we will submit, End quote. Yet it is to them that Christian laymen turn for counsel on how to fight the good epistemological fight of faith. Certification as Initiation The academic certification issue has been at the heart of the retreat of Christianity, for about eight centuries. The legally independent universities of Europe, 
steadily became the screening mechanisms for all literate men in a hierarchically structured society. The centralized bureaucracy of the Roman Church became the model for civil government. Every bureaucracy must screen access to its positions. The popes, kings, and princes all recognized this fact early, and they sought to exercise control over the universities. The pagan emperor, Frederick II of Sicily, in the early 12th century established the University of Naples in order to secure total state control over all civil justice. Others who saw their opportunity were the various heretical religious orders. The spiritualists invaded the universities and could not be driven out. The universities of Paris, Oxford, and Cambridge all fought and lost the war against heresy during their initial three centuries. Only after the Reformation was orthodoxy restored at the English universities, and they soon moved towards Arminianism. Emmanuel College at Cambridge did become a center for Calvinism in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, but then came under Archbishop Laud's attacks. The English Puritans recognized that the humanism and rationalism of Cambridge and Oxford constituted a major problem, but they were unable to take control of those two sacrosanct institutions, even after military victory in a civil war. The Puritans in New England built Harvard College in a wilderness in 1636, adopted a European rationalist curriculum, and prayed that immersion in Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Ames's marrow of sacred divinity would save them. They lost the bet. Harvard went downhill generation by generation, until the climax in 1805, when Unitarian Henry Ware Sr. was appointed Professor of Divinity. After that, the Unitarians took over. Yet no one could enter the preaching ministry in Puritan New England who was not a Harvard, Cambridge, or Oxford graduate, except for a few men in the howling wilderness of Maine and New Hampshire. The result is described well by Westminster's Samuel Logan. Quote, the Calvinist tulip was transformed first into an Armenian dandelion and then into a Unitarian ragweed, dot, 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 end quote. In 1812, Princeton Theological Seminary was begun in order to train men for the ministry, since their undergraduate educations could no longer be trusted theologically. From the beginning, then, the Theological Seminary was a stopgap, defensive measure, Yet this most conservative of all theological seminaries adopted Scottish common-sense realism as its apologetic foundation, precisely the system that Harvard College was proclaiming. This tradition ended at Princeton only with Van Til's appointment in 1928, and the next year he left Princeton and joined the Westminster faculty. Can you imagine Martin Luther's insisting that all candidates for the Protestant ministry first be granted a degree from the Pontifical Institute in Rome? Yet this is approximately what all modern Presbyterian seminaries require. They normally require a B.A. from an accredited college for all entering students. The Presbyterian denominations still require seminary attendance for ordination. The seminaries, in turn, usually require their faculty members to have an M.A. or Ph.D. from a humanist university or a Th.D. from another seminary, very often liberal. In short, officially they say, no, to humanism when trying to raise money from Christian donors, but they require everyone seeking any position of academic authority 
on campus to run the humanist academic gauntlet. This has been going on in Christian higher education for about eight centuries. When will this tradition end? In our day, the drift into political and theological liberalism has gone on, decade after decade, in the Christian colleges. The result is visible for all to see. The triumph of humanism in the vast majority of the Protestant churches and the total isolation of tiny pockets of Christian scholarship. Scholarship that self-consciously refuses to challenge the humanist social order head-on in the name of the Bible. Well did Journey magazine summarize, quote, What's wrong with our Reformed seminaries? End quote. Secularization, the body count problem, the wimp syndrome, evangelicalization, the de-emphasis of systematic theology, the loss of the Vantillian apologetic, the practicalization of theology, and the loss of the covenant theology perspective. The seminaries have steadily drifted toward liberalism. Mumbling for Jesus It is the offense of the theonomists that we have understood Van Til's comprehensive challenge to modern humanism and have therefore launched sustained academic attacks on many fronts. By doing this, we are implicitly asking, and I am explicitly asking, quote, Where are the Calvinist institutions of higher learning in this fight? Why are they silent? Why are they afraid to defend publicly the six-day creation or attack the immorality of socialism, for example, liberation theology, the illegitimacy of state certification and financing of education, and abortion as murder, end quote. In short, why do they mumble? We know the answer. They have not yet broken with the comprehensive humanist worldview that Van Til challenged, if not root and branch, then at least root. We theonomists are doing our best to cut off some of the branches that Van Til chose to ignore. This is our offense. This is called forth theonomy, a reformed critique. Our academically certified critics on campus still refuse to attack the humanist educational system that certified them and the worldview they were taught while undergoing their required initiation. And now, having gained its institutionally useless certification from a non-Calvinist, non-Christian academic accrediting association, Westminster is facing the removal of that unneeded accreditation because its board does not have any women. Westminster Seminary has long refused to recognize the fundamental rule governing respectable humanism's relations with Christianity. Quote, You play ball with us, and we'll smash you in the teeth with the bat. End quote. Westminster Seminary is worse than foolish. Westminster Seminary is naive. Van Til warned all who would listen about compromises with humanism, but Westminster refused to listen. The siren song of public acceptance by the seminary's mortal enemies was just too alluring. And like the sirens of the Odyssey, they have lured the school toward the rocks. Better never to have sought and gained accreditation than to have it removed. God is not mocked. With this as background, I come now to the actual essays in Theonomy, a Reformed Critique. The faculty's critique of theonomy is not unified. There is no agreed-upon view of civil law that links together the contributors to the symposium. What they are agreed on is that the specific defense of theonomy that was set forth by Greg Bonson in 1973 is either wrong, the majority view, or exegetically inadequate, 
on such a meager foundation as this negative presentation. Cultural skyscrapers are not built. The Westminster faculty has, is not unified regarding the judicial substance of its critique, but only its form. Quote, not Bonson, not here, not ever. End quote. This is why the careful reader cannot discover what, exactly, the contributors suggest as an alternative to biblical law. They have no idea. They do not say. All they know is that they do not want biblical law as the basis of civil law. If the U.S. Supreme Court authorizes the murder of unborn babies, that is good enough for Westminster. If it should reverse itself, that is also good enough for Westminster. What is not good enough is Bonson's formulation of theonomy. So in this chapter, we will scan the highlights of eight essays that tell us why theonomy is just not good enough, plus one. Robert D. Knudsen Having taken a class from Dr. Knudsen, I can say that he is a decent lecturer, even when there is only one person enrolled. That was the case with me. He would come into class, put his lecture notes on the podium, give the lecture, and walk out. I could not cut that class. The class was, quote, the fate of freedom in Western philosophy, end quote. The only problem I ever had with it was that I could never understand what exactly he was offering as an alternative. One thing seemed certain, and most of his students knew it. Knudsen had little use for the philosophy of Van Til. In 1963, we knew the Department of Apologetics was divided. He was a Dewirdian, to the extent that he was anything, and his unwillingness to write only made things more difficult for us. We never could figure out what he wanted Christians to do, other than preach a soul-saving gospel. That was our problem with Van Til, too. He would never raise or answer the crucial question, quote, what is to be done, end quote. His lack of specifics is the same problem I face in explaining his essay, quote, may we use the term theonomy, end quote. The essay contains not one footnote, not one reference to Bonson, and not one mention of Rush Dooney. Dr. Knudsen's chief problem in writing about theonomy is that he just does not know what to believe about law. I can understand this. He spent his career immersed in Dewey Weird's new critique of theoretical thought in the original Dutch. He writes of the Ten Commandments, quote, These are indeed commandments, but they are not formulated in legal terms. It is not stipulated exactly what would constitute keeping them or transgressing them, or exactly what the rewards and punishments might be, end quote. This is vague enough to satisfy every state-licensed abortionist in America. To the reader, keep the word abortion in the back of your mind as you read these essays on what Christian ethics supposedly does not require us to believe. How should we then live? Well then, even the marginally inquisitive student might ask, how did the ancient nation of Israel know what to do? More to the point from the perspective of civil law, how did its residents know what they were prohibited from doing? They must have turned to the case laws that follow Exodus 20. This is Rush Dooney's thesis in Institutes, but Knudsen does not mention Rush Dooney. This is also my thesis in Tools of Dominion, which appeared far too late for Knudsen also to ignore. Ah, but Knudsen has a unique solution to this problem. He defines Christian responsibility, not in terms of knowing what to do, but in not knowing what to do. Quote, 
In all their relationships, New Testament believers do not have less responsibility than their Old Testament counterparts for obeying God's will as expressed in His law. In fact, they have greater responsibility because it is not legally stipulated exactly what they should and should not do. End quote. The Israelites knew what was expected. Christians don't. They had less responsibility. We have more. In other words, quote, from him to whom less has been given, more is expected, end quote, and vice versa. This is the opposite of what Luke 12, 47, and 48 teaches. But as I said before, Dr. Knudsen has immersed himself in Dewey Weird's books. The more of this he got, the less anyone ever expected from him or received from him. For example, footnotes. Amusing as all this may be, it brings us to the grim reality of Newton's view of civil law. This view of civil law is a perfect prescription for tyranny. In the civil realm, if the state is not limited by law in what it can and cannot legitimately do, then the nation becomes subject to the whims of the leaders and the bureaucrats. This was the lesson I learned in Newton's class when he assigned C.S. Lewis's novel, That Hideous Strength, which literally changed my life. But Newton obviously does not understand what Lewis was getting at. He does not see the threat posed by any civil government that is authorized to rehabilitate criminals at will, but is not forced to specify specific punishments for specific crimes. The evil policewoman of the novel, Fairy Hardcastle, did understand. Quote, You've got to get the ordinary man into the state in which he says sadism automatically when he hears the word punishment. End quote. And then one would have carte blanche. End quote. The twofold purpose of statute law is to limit the criminal and limit the state. If men do not know what the law of God requires, the covenant breaking state can declare anything as a crime and then enforce its law without judicial limits. We have seen this happen again and again throughout the 20th century. Here is the fate of freedom in Western legal philosophy. Without biblically specified limits on the state, freedom steadily disappears. But Knudsen substitutes pragmatism for biblical law. Quote, the dispensation of the law, which I have likened to a chrysalis, has been set aside. The new age has come. Any specific legally qualified provision of the Old Testament may be applied in this new age only if it fits. The criterion for its usefulness will be a New Testament one. End quote. New Age indeed, a world without the judicial aspects of the Ten Commandments to restrain it. What is the God-ordained alternative to biblical law? He does not say. Instead, he treats us to a fine example of some typically Dewardian verbiage. Ready? Here we go. Quote, In view of the above characterization of the law, we can understand that it could not be conceived properly as resting in itself. Even though it had a legal quality, the law constantly acted so as to break through its own constraints. Within the old dispensation, there were strands that were not legally qualified, and these acted so as to break through the legal form. Throughout the old covenant offered glimpses of what lay beyond it and on what it depended. End quote. Anyone who thinks that this line of reasoning is a reasonable substitute for Van Til's apologetics and biblical law is probably a Westminster Seminary graduate. But at least Knudsen has not abandoned Van Til's legacy. He never did accept it. During much of the Clowney era, 
Newton was either the editor or the managing editor of the Westminster Theological Journal. Like Clowney, he did his work quietly to restructure Westminster's confession. Tremper Longman III Chapter 2 of the book begins with the presupposition that Chapter 1 implicitly rejects the connection between the case laws and the Ten Commandments. Writes Dr. Longman, quote, However, what is the Mosaic Law but the application of the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel? None of the civil or moral laws is independent of the Ten Commandments. They are all summarized in them. The case laws are specifications of the general principles of the Ten Commandments. End quote. One would be hard-pressed to find a better statement of the theonomic position on the Decalogue. What is the catch? Why is this essay in a book critical of theonomy? Because Dr. Longman finds that the application of biblical law to specific cases is, quote, very difficult, end quote. That's it. That, basically, is it. Quote, in reading the standard works of theonomy, one can easily get the impression that Old Testament laws are simple and clear-cut. We have already seen evidence to dispute this, at least from the perspective of the modern interpreter, end quote. Note the word, quote, simple, end quote. We shall see it again in this connection. There is little indication in his footnotes that he has read the standard works of theonomy. Neither have most of his colleagues. He does not cite any of the following books. James Jordan's The Law of the Covenant, My Economic Commentary on Genesis, The Dominion Covenant, Genesis and My Commentaries on Exodus, Moses and Pharaoh, The Sinai Strategy, and Tools of Dominion. Well, this is not quite true. He does refer to my view on stoning, which appears in the Sinai Strategy, but he refers to H. Wayne House and Thomas D. Ice's book, Dominion, Dominion Theology, Blessing or Curse, as his authority. He has obviously not looked at my books. This is understandable. I am not the issue, since I was not rejected for a job at Westminster, never having applied. Bonson is different. Dr. Longman insists that the penalties in the Old Covenant were flexible. This means that the maximum penalty was always only that, a maximum. I agree entirely. This is the thesis of my book, Victims' Rights, which is basically a 300-page extract from Tools of Dominion. The key question that Dr. Longman fails to address is this. On what basis could the judges have imposed a penalty less than the maximum? The answer biblically is easy. The victim of the crime specified the penalty. The standard interpretation of the lex talionis that the rabbis have taken for over a thousand years is that the judges could substitute a monetary payment for a strict eye-for-eye eye penalty. I argue that the victim's right to substitute penalties keeps a godly society from becoming the victim of arbitrary civil judges. These two crucial issues are ignored by the defenders of judicial flexibility. 1. How to place judicial limits on civil judges. 2. How to defend the rights of the victim. Judicial Flexibility What Dr. Longman wants is judicial flexibility. Specifically, he and all of his colleagues want flexibility regarding the Old Testament's penal sanctions. Dr. Logan says that the New England Puritans adopted this. This is what the whole anti-theonomy debate has been about from the beginning. Theonomy's many critics are horrified by the long list of capital crimes in the Old Testament. So, they appeal to judicial flexibility 
as a way to escape their dilemma. The problem is, in this era of moral relativism, any judicial flexibility that is not qualified by the biblical principle of victims' rights transfers authority to the civil government to do whatever it pleases. But this does not concern Dr. Longman. What concerns him is Bonson. Quote, Bonson is so blinded by his idiosyncratic translation and interpretation of Matthew 5.17 that he can't see that Jesus, as the Son of God, does indeed introduce adaptations of the Old Testament law for a new redemptive situation. End quote. This leads me to a crucial point. Where, in the 17 years separating Bonson's THM thesis and Westminster's book, did any faculty member of Westminster go into print with a detailed refutation of Bonson's 47-page exposition of Matthew 5, 17, and 18, which is the bedrock foundation of his thesis. The faculty here pretends that someone, somewhere, sometime, has definitively refuted Bonson on this point, yet the book never offers so much as a footnote to that refutation. This author just tells us that Bonson is exegetically idiosyncratic. What are we waiting for is proof. We need arguments, not assertions that are 17 years too late. Theonomy, a reformed critique, does not supply arguments on this. Bonson's bedrock exegesis. Why not? I offer this suggestion because none of them is confident that Bonson can be answered by means of Westminster's new confession. Silence is the better part of valor in this instance. They just pretend that someone else has answered him, the same way that the defenders of Christian pluralism pretend that someone has presented a biblical exegetical case for pluralism. It is convenient. It is not intellectually honest, of course, but it is convenient. Bruce K. Waltke I cover Dr. Waltke in greater detail in Chapter 10. Besides, he is long gone. His wanderlust returned, and he left. I will say this. He knows where the real conflict lies. He knows who the proper source is. In rejecting Bonson, he cites the political views of Edmund Clowney. This has been the dividing issue at Westminster for a quarter of a century. Clowney versus Van Til. Clowney versus Bonson. And finally, Clowney versus the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Edmund Clowney's career deserves a book, or at least a complete issue of Journey. John M. Frame Frame likes some aspects of theonomy, but he doesn't like others. Did anyone expect anything else? Sick et non, John, strikes again. In the words of one professor at Covenant Seminary, quote, There have been three approaches to apologetics at Westminster Seminary. Van Til said that everyone else was wrong. Frame thinks that there are some correct things in everyone's system and some incorrect things. Poitras thinks that everyone is correct from a certain point of view. End quote. Judicial simpletons. Frame suggests that, quote, the greatest appeal of the Christian Reconstruction movement, or theonomy, lies in the simplicity and radicalism of its proposal. End quote. I reply, radical? Yes. Simple? No. We have never regarded our task of reviving biblical casuistry as a simple task. Casuistry is difficult. It is simply ridiculous even to hint at this supposed simplicity of our self-imposed vision. In 1972, 
in the concluding words of my Ph.D. dissertation on the decline of the New England theocratic view of economics, I wrote the following, quote, In a transitional era, one in which the burdens of the inherited intellectual and cultural paradigm seem too great to bear any longer, the innovators regard their predecessors as men enmeshed in a tangled web of conflicting policies. The web no longer seems to hang together. Under these circumstances, the innovators are seldom aware of the possibilities for multiple applications of their own philosophical, Archimedean point. It makes the task of reconstruction appear far easier than it really is. Quote. Could I have made it any plainer? Do my 650-plus pages of exegesis on three chapters of Exodus, limited to a discussion of economic questions, indicate that I regard this task as simple? Of course, I keep forgetting. I don't count, since I never applied for a job at Westminster. Here is the place to point out one very clever strategy that our critics have adopted. They point to Bonson's apologetic defense of theonomy and conclude that it is simplistic. Theonomy and Christian ethics did not attempt to apply all of the case laws to contemporary issues. It was a rigorous defense of a particular hermeneutic. But we have published over a hundred books in scholarly journals that apply our hermeneutic position, and both positively and negatively, to the affairs of this world. The critics fail to mention this somewhat annoying fact. They do not offer us even the courtesy that House and Ice, as dispensational critics, extended providing a lengthy, annotated bibliography of our works. The reader is left with the impression that we are simplistic. They are not reticent to cite the journalistic hatchet job written by Rodney Clapp and published in Christianity Today. References to Clapp's essay appear seven times in the Westminster book. Yet Clapp recognized clearly that what we theonomists are suggesting is the very opposite of simplicity. We have never pretended otherwise contrary to Clapp. Quote, the point is that there are hundreds of such details to be sorted out and applied to the contemporary situation. Reconstructionism does not actually provide the clear, simple, incontestably biblical solutions to ethical questions that it pretends to, and that are so attractive to many conservative Christians. Reconstructed society would appear to require a second encyclopedic Talmud, and to foster hordes of scribes with competing judgments in a society of people who are locked on the law's fine points rather than living by its spirit, page 23, end quote. To which I replied, quote, Ah, yes, living by the spirit, a noble goal indeed, precisely the goal of the Anabaptist revolutionaries who tore Europe apart in Luther's day. To see more clearly where Mr. Clapp is headed, try this experiment. Rather than thinking, quote, reconstructed society, end quote, to yourself. Substitute, quote, constitutional law and republican guarantees of liberty, end quote. There is no doubt about it. Such a system of civil government involves complexity. Do you see a place for legislatures filled with people who debate details carefully before they agree to any policy? Do you see a court system in which judges often disagree and which takes time, debate, thought, and contending lawyers to sort out the truth? Do you see voters who disagree? Do you see, in short, a system of political and judicial liberty? Isn't this the essence of constitutionalism? 
But would Mr. Clapp impress his readers by coming out forthrightly against constitutional law? The only practical alternatives to judicial complexity in history that comes to my mind is the tyranny of arbitrary law, which in our day was best incarnated by Joseph Stalin, who, when he was awakened by the barking of a blind man's dog one evening, ordered the dog shot, also its owner. No muss, no fuss, no lawyers, scribes, no Talmudic debates over details, end quote. Why, then, are we accused of being basically judicial simpletons? It was Rush Dooney who first identified what he called the fallacy of simplicity, and he turned to the Second Council of Constantinople, 552 A.D., to refute it. Theonomists recognize that simplicity is the officially stated goal of humanist legal reformers from the University of Padua eight centuries ago to the Napoleonic Code to the modern day. It never simplifies. It always leads to endless volumes of bureaucratic rules. The, ju the judicial reform that we propose is to subsume all civil laws under the Ten Commandments as illuminated by the case laws. Simple? No. Radical? Yes. Klein and pluralism. Frame goes after Meredith Klein far more than he goes after Bonson making this one of the better essays in the book. He sees clearly that Klein's system relies on the idea of religiously neutral law, the Noahic Covenant, the foundation of pluralism. This is why the pluralists in the book rely on Klein. Frame states forthrightly, quote, Religious neutrality is not only a wrong goal, but also impossible in the nature of the case. All crime comes from false religion, dot, dot, dot. End quote. In this sense, Frame is being faithful to Van Til's legacy. This is what marks his essay as exceptional in this collection. He calls both the theonomists and the intrusionists to get to work exegetically. I have no objection. I have spent a million dollars and 17 years doing this. But I must remind Frame and Poitras, who calls for the same thing, Doing detailed exegesis requires motivation. Which system of theology provides this motivation? A system that declares that God's laws and sanctions are still operational in New Testament times? Or a system that declares all of the Mosaic legislation as an intrusion in history that is not in any way judicially binding on civil governments today? The answer is obvious. Where is Klein's exegesis of law? For that matter, where is Klein's post-1980 exegesis of anything? Where are his followers' exegesis of the law of God? There are none. They are pluralists, one and all, as later essays in Theonomy and Reform Critique indicate. They are unhappy with Frame's work. They wish, many years ago, he had been hired somewhere else. Then they would be able to say today, quote, Therefore, Westminster could not hire Frame, end quote. As they say today, quote, Therefore, Westminster could not hire Bonson and Shepard had to be fired. End quote. Klein and Pluralism Frame goes after Meredith Klein far more than he goes after Bonson, making this one of the better essays in the book. He sees clearly that Klein's system relies on the idea of religiously neutral law, the Noahic Covenant, the foundation of pluralism.
This is why the pluralists in the book rely on Klein. Frame states forthrightly, quote, Religious neutrality is not only a wrong goal, but also impossible in the nature of the case. All crime comes from false religion. Dot, 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 end quote. In this sense, Frame is being faithful to Van Til's legacy. This is what marks his essay as exceptional in this collection. He calls both the theonomists and the intrusionists to get to work exegetically. I have no objection. I have spent a million dollars and 17 years doing this. But I must remind Frame and Poitras, who calls for the same thing, doing detailed exegesis requires motivation. Which system of theology provides this motivation? A system that declares that God's laws and sanctions are still operational in New Testament times, or a system that declares all of the Mosaic legislation as an intrusion in history that is not in any way judicially binding on civil governments today? The answer is obvious. Where is Klein's exegesis of the law? For that matter, where is Klein's post-1980 exegesis of anything? Where are his followers' exegesis of the law of God? There are none. They are all pluralists, one and all, as later essays in Theonomy, a Reform Critique, indicate. They are unhappy with Frames' work. They wish, many years ago, he had been hired somewhere else. Then they would be able to say today, quote, Therefore, Westminster could not hire Frame, end quote. As they say today, quote, Therefore, Westminster could not hire Bonson, and Shepherd had to be fired, end quote. Vernon Sheridan Poitras Dr. Poitras is basically me too, John, with minor qualifications. He writes as though he thinks that frame is just too hardcore. Poitras wants to smooth over all differences. Sometimes I am tempted to call him Vernon Sheridan Pangloss. Dr. Poitras loves to play with texts. He rolls them around in his word processor the way children roll around bright stones in their fingers. Then they drop them into a box and forget about them. So does Poitras. For example, he cites Leviticus 19.19, 19, quote, Ye shall keep my statutes. Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. Thou shalt not sow thy field with mingled seed. Neither shall a garment mingled of linen and woolen come upon thee, end quote. He spends seven precious pages discussing how this text might be interpreted in different ways by theonomists and intrusionists, but he never suggests how it should be interpreted by faculty members. He then invokes Frame's familiar triparatite division of ethics, and just about everything else, into normative, personal, and situational. Three more pages gone. No conclusions. Then he cites Deuteronomy 4, 6-8. through Quote, Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? End quote. Guess what? The theonomists can interpret this passage one way, while intrusionists can interpret it another way. What is the proper interpretation? We just don't know yet. Quote, it is too easy to read into a passage what we afterwards read out. End quote. This took three and a half pages. 
Then he refers to Deuteronomy 17, 2-13, which he does not actually quote. This law specifies stoning for false worship. Theonomists can interpret this literally or symbolically. Two and a half pages. Then comes the rousing finish, penal law. Some laws are restitutional. Some are ceremonial. They all point to Christ. What should we do? Nothing much. Quote, but it is wiser not to impose our classification at all, lest we compress the richness of the passage or prejudice the limits of its implications. Instead, we should patiently try to understand the function of the particular law in its context and on this base basis discern how it applies, perhaps in a variety of respects, in the New Testament era. End quote. Perhaps we could call this approach quote, judicial multi-perspectivalism. End quote. The problem here is the civil judge's inevitable question to the jury, quote, guilty or innocent, end quote, to which the jury is, in, is no doubt supposed to reply, seminarian-like, quote, that all depends, your honor, end quote. Poitras's version of judicial theology is essentially the theology of the hung jury. Up a lazy river without a paddle. He ends his essay with a plea to hard work. No more laziness, theonomists. No more laziness, intrusionists. Quote, we will have to do our homework to understand the whole Bible in depth. End quote. Some theonomists and intrusionists have just not done their homework. Quote, some theonomists, simple arguments. End quote. Notice that familiar word, simple. Quote, to the effect that Old Testament law is confirmed in the New Testament and therefore must be kept now in a literal and straightforward way are not adequate. Some intrusionists, simple arguments to the effect that many laws are not found outside of the Mosaic era, and therefore may safely not be kept, are equally inadequate. End quote. No names are mentioned. No wonder. Now, here is the capper, the absolute crushing climax. Quote, Both of these routes are the lazy way out in the sense that they do not come to grips with the full richness of Old Testament revelation. We have to work to understand what God is saying. Dot, dot, dot. End quote. Funny thing, when I sent Dr. Poitras my manuscript for Tools of Dominion in 1988, he wrote back to tell me how surprised he was to learn that I was working on the case laws of Exodus. And what, pray tell, did he think would follow my two volumes on Exodus, with volume two ending with Exodus 20? Add to this an appendix to Tools that reached 700 pages of text, Political Polytheism. He admits that, quote, the best representatives of both theonomy and intrusion are, of course, not so simplistic, but I think that even they may be able to learn by some more sensitive listening to the other side, end quote. First, I feel compelled to ask Dr. Poitras, when is it time to stop listening sensitively and start preaching decisively? When do the endless qualifications cease? Second, I have yet to see a single piece of exegesis of any biblical law by any intrusionist that is said to be applicable to the New Covenant era. We have waited patiently for 28 years. How long do we have to wait? All I see are defenses of political pluralism without any exegesis whatsoever. Where are the intrusionists' exegetical goods? All I have seen so far from intrusionists is a systematic rejection of God's law. Panglossianism is not the solution. The solution is to see what Westminster has done in the case of Bonson and all other theonomists. Panglossianism has not governed the hiring practices of the clowny and post-clowny era of Westminster Seminary. 
Don't take my word for it. Ask Norman Shepard. Dan G. McCartney Dr. McCartney, one of the Gordon-Conwell crew, fails to cite a single work by any theonomist in his article. In fact, he cites only two books, both showing that the term prophet applies to the whole of the Old Testament. Wow! He sees the issue, Old Testament law and its specified penal sanctions. He replies in an entire section that, quote, Law is Christological and covenantal, end quote. Very good. Unfortunately, he fails to define covenantal, a traditional game of covenant theologians that stretches back about 400 years. Instead, he shifts ground and says that the law is Christocentric. The Old Covenant's law was not made for the nations around Israel, he says. This means that he needs to refute Bonson. It also means that he needs to refute Jonah. He does not even mention Bonson. This is neutral scholarship, apparently, which means never having to refer to the specific arguments of your targeted victims. To refer to them by name would, no doubt, be in poor taste. Worse, one's students might actually discover where the victims' arguments are developed in depth and thereby reject one's own unsubstantiated assertions. He takes a unique and necessary approach. He systematically ignores the theonomist's case for the civil use of the Old Testament laws. He includes a section, quote, historical or covenantal use of the Pentateuch, end quote. He neglects to mention the civil covenant anywhere in the seven-page section, a not-so-odd oversight. Then he offers us, quote, ecclesiastical use of the Pentateuch, end quote, three pages. Then we get, quote, ethical use of the Pentateuch, end quote. We are getting warmer. This could include civil law. But, of course, it doesn't. In none of Jesus' five references to the Pentateuch, he says, does, quote, the question of sanction or appropriate punishment arise, and in no instance does the issue of state involvement or enforcement appear, end quote. He pulls no punches. He italicizes the following, quote, dot, dot, dot. Jesus does not seem to be concerned with the civil application or civil enforcement of the Mosaic legislation, end quote. In short, he says, quote, where legal questions arise, he is concerned with the law's internal application, not its external enforcement, end quote. Conclusion. No biblical civil penal sanctions are valid today. This is Westminster's Confession. Internalization. I appreciate his forthrightness. I wish that the other hostile contributors had been equally forthright. Let us examine his strategy. First, he ignores Bonson's fundamental claim that a case law that is not revoked by the New Testament is still binding. He does not so much as mention this thesis. He assumes the opposite. If it is not re-invoked, it is no longer binding. I refer to this as the bestiality hermeneutic. Jesus did not condemn bestiality, nor did he call for the execution of the human and the beast, as the Old Covenant did. So we are today left free to decide whether or not to pass laws against it. And what about marrying your sister? When James Jordan asked this question in class at Reformed Theological Seminary, the anti-theonomic professor obliged him. This is no longer a biblical legal issue, he said. Then Jordan wimped out, as he later admitted, quote, I should have asked him, how about marrying your wid widowed mother? End quote. Second, he has relegated politics to the realm outside of the bounds of biblical ethics. 
if the civil covenant is not, in fact, a covenant, and if biblical ethics is part of the New Testament, his argument, then civil government is beyond biblical law and its sanctions. This is, in fact, the position of Westminster's faculty. This is Westminster's confession. It internalizes God's law. Quote, In summary, the most basic use of the Pentateuch in the New Testament is to establish the covenantal nature of the gospel. Since the law is covenantal, it is the inward obedience of the heart stemming from the relationship to God that determines the New Testament's positive use of the law. The ecclesiastical and ethical applications of the law to the church all flow from this covenantal basis, inasmuch as the only contact between the Gentile church and the law of Moses is through Christ, the covenant mediator. End quote. The law of the covenant is said to be internal. There is a huge problem lurking around in these shadows. His argument undermines the idea of the family as a covenantal institution. He does not say this explicitly, but his silence testifies to it. Only the church is a covenantal institution, he implies. Yet this radical departure from the concept of the biblical covenant needs to be proven, not just asserted, civil covenant, and ignored, family covenant. He writes, quote, Not once in the New Testament is the civil aspect of the Old Testament law applied to the civil authority as an ideal. End quote. If this were not the case, then political liberalism would be anti-Christian. Let it not be. Better to remove all of God's civil sanctions from civil law, even though in doing so we bring God's sanctions down on us. If anyone asks me, quote, Are you suggesting that AIDS is God's sanction against society for refusing to enforce God's civil laws against homosexuality? End quote. I reply, quote, If it isn't, it is the best imitation since syphilis. End quote. The Christian antinomians who take this position, that the state is not a covenantal institution under God's covenantal laws and sanctions, must also argue, as Klein does, that God no longer brings his predictable corporate sanctions in new covenant history. McCartney is a pietist, pure and simple. He insists on the internalization of kingdom law and kingdom sanctions in new covenant history. The case laws are out. Quote, Therefore, the New Testament's approach to the Old Testament is not an attempt to readapt or contemporize case law in the way the rabbis did. The law, or rather the Old Testament, as an entirety, is focused on Christ, and through Him it becomes applicable to believers. Thus case law is not directly applicable even to believers. It is applicable only as a working out of God's moral principles, an expression of God's character revealed in Christ." End quote. Sanctions removed. The church is the only institution is which God's sanctions still apply. He says, and there is only one final sanction, excommunication. Quote, As we have noted, the New Testament gives no indication of the law's sanctions as applicable to any except Christ and, through him, his people. Dot, dot, dot. There may indeed be punishment for people within the church, 2 Corinthians 10.6, but this does not involve civil authority or those outside the church, 1 Corinthians 5.12. And its only form is various degrees of removal from fellowship, being cut off from the people, end quote. In short, as far as unmarried, non-church members are concerned, it's, quote, grab your animal partners, boys, we're under grace, not law, end quote. From this point on, whenever I think of the name Dan G. McCartney, 
it will take an act of will on my part not to visualize a group scene best left undescribed. But every participant is smiling. What this man and millions more just like him cannot seem to grasp in this fundamental judicial principle, without negative sanctions, there is no law. That is what hell is all about. It is not surprising that modern evangelical scholars, adamant in their rejection of God's law and sanctions, are becoming increasingly unwilling to affirm the existence of hell. The issue is sanctions. Well over four centuries after Luther raised the issue with respect to the sacraments and the indulgences, it is still the same issue. Until Christians stop thinking of the Old Testament as barbaric, sanctions will remain an unresolved issue. Moises Silva Dr. Silva, unlike several of his colleagues, uses footnotes. Long block footnotes. Pages of footnotes. There is one brief reference to a theonomist. This is reasonable, however. Nowhere in his article does he challenge a single theonomic idea. Instead, he targets Meredith G. Klein. Silva's is by far my favorite article in the book. The article considers Galatians 3.21, quote, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law, end quote. He spends two pages to prove to us that this verse means that the law cannot impart life. No problem here for theonomists. Then he cites Galatians 3.18, quote, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. End quote. Silva argues that verse 21 is an extension of verse 18. No problem here for theonomists, but it is a big problem for intrusionists. Citing Klein, Silva writes, quote, It appears that we cannot really appeal to verse 18 in support of the contention that Paul sees a radical opposition of the law covenant of Sinai to the principle of inheritance by promise. In fact, it can plausibly be argued that the very burden of the passage is to deny any such opposition. End quote. Silva is correct. Quote, the antithesis is not between law and promise merely, but rather between inheritance by law and inheritance by promise. Dot, dot, dot. End quote. It is not the law that Paul opposes, but rather Quote, the law is life-giving source, dot, 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 end quote. Silva goes on to discuss some technical problems associated with Galatians 3.12, quote, And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them, end quote. He states emphatically that, quote, Galatians 3, that is, the Pauline passage that most directly addresses the question of covenant continuity, gives no support to recent attempts among Reformed scholars to redefine the relationship between the Old and New Covenants. End quote. Why this article appears in Theonomy, a Reformed critique, is beyond me. But I would like to see it included in any forthcoming Westminster Symposium called Intrusionism, a Reformed Critique. Dennis E. Johnson First, I hate even to refer to Do Dr. Johnson's essay. It is the target of one of the most careful, scholarly, mild-mannered, and intellectually devastating critiques that I have ever read. What Kenneth L. Gentry, Jr. does to Dennis Johnson is so complete that Greg Bonson's brief essay targeting Johnson is a piddling firecracker compared to a Tomahawk cruise missile. Second, it still amazes me that Dr. Johnson wrote an essay in the very first issue 
of the Journal of Christian Reconstruction. Until just before he was hired by Westminster, he was known as a theonomist. He changed his views. He later told Greg Bonson regarding the role of Old Covenant pagan kings. He needed to write about this topic. Nebuchadnezzar did. Daniel 4. Civil Sanctions and Christian Responsibility I regard Johnson's essay as the most important in Theonomy, a Reformed Critique, not for the caliber of his arguments, but for the nature of his conclusions. It has long been my contention that the Christian opponents of Theonomy have a hidden agenda. This agenda is the escape from any personal responsibility for the pursuit of national, covenantal renewal. They recognize the inescapable connection between the civil sanctions of the Old Testament and the personal responsibility of enforcing them. They have self-consciously denied the legitimacy of these sanctions. This is the underlying theological agenda of theonomy, a Reformed critique. He begins with Westminster's familiar yes to the comprehensive Lordship of Christ. Quote, Christians are bound to acknowledge the Lordship of King Jesus in the political arena as in all other dimensions of life. End quote. In other words, quote, say yes to Christianity's relevance, end quote. Then comes the perennial question from the theonomists, how? From that point on, it is all downhill. The remainder of the essay is an extended no to biblical law. Let us review the Old Testament's capital sanctions. First, Old Covenant law required the witnesses to take the lead in executing the convicted criminal. Deuteronomy 17.7 Second, death by stoning was mandatory in most capital crimes. All the men of the local community were to participate. Deuteronomy 21.21 God has not changed these laws. Of all the applications of biblical law that I have proposed, none has received the ridicule and outrage that this one has. Yet the case law texts are quite clear. Why such resistance? The critics cannot bring themselves to believe that a Christian would take these specified requirements seriously. Even those Christians who still favor capital punishment want it done behind sealed walls by a paid executioner. They do not want to participate personally in such an act of lawful public vengeance. In short, they do not want to become fully responsible biblical witnesses. This was Adam's sin too. Basically, Christians really do believe that the God of the Old Testament was, and I stress was, a barbarian. They would deny this verbally, if questioned. Nevertheless, they accept it psychologically. Marcion was a 2nd century heretic who said that the fierce God of the Old Testament was different from the benign God of the New Testament. And when it comes to a choice between Marcion's theory of the Bible's two gods, Old Testament versus New Testament, and Theonomy's assertion of a continuity between Old Covenant civil sanctions and New Covenant civil sanctions, they choose operational Marcionism every time. They see stoning as a mark of this barbarism. They really will not use the word torture when describing hell. Yet it is obvious that hell and the lake of fire are instruments of God's cosmic torture. Christians cannot stomach a God who imposes serious sanctions, and they reject the very suggestion that in a holy commonwealth they would be responsible personally for imposing God's earthly sanctions. Thus they have rejected theonomy. They would rather, rather live under any version of humanism and demonism than be personally responsible 
for stoning a convicted criminal. God has given them their desire. Johnson's essay is typical of the worldview of modern pietism, both Reformed and Arminian. It is a theological defense of Christianity without legitimate sanctions outside the local church cloister. The only ultimate biblical negative sanction in New Covenant history is excommunication. This lets Christians off the cultural hook. They know that covenant breakers care nothing about excommunication. Covenant breakers do not perceive excommunication as a personal threat, assuming they know what it is, which they don't. How many Christians are aware that excommunicate is related grammatically to the word communion, as in holy communion? Not many. Therefore, covenant break keepers are seemingly let off the hook for the evils of covenant-breaking society. Christianity's triumphs are confined to the cloister for the sake of reduced cultural responsibility. Kingdom without sanctions Theologically, this is a concept of God's kingdom without sanctions. God is seen as imposing His predictable sanctions only after death. For pietists, Jesus is king of dead kings, and Lord of dead lords. God's earthly sanctions are random, Klein and Mether tells us. The sanctions might as well be Satan's. With such a view of historic sanctions, they are Satan's, covenantly perverse, a reversal of Deuteronomy 28. God still has kingdom agents in history, but their New Testament jurisdiction is supposedly confined inside the four walls of the institutional church, and only the Orthodox churches at that. In short, there could be no valid concept of Christendom. Christendom was a heresy of the Middle Ages, and, sad to say, of Calvin and the pre-1660 Puritans. But we have been freed from all that by the 1788 revision of the Westminster Confession. Quote, free at last, free at last, Lord God half-mighty, we're free at last. End quote. Free to serve as civil slaves of Satan's agents in history. No one has articulated the theology of this new freedom better in such a short space than Dennis Johnson. The penal sanctions of the Old Covenant were legitimate, but only because the people of Israel were formally covenanted to God as a nation. Quote, Certain penal sanctions belong to categories of laws that set Israel apart from all the non-covenantal nations as a holy people, with God's temple in their midst, dot, dot, dot. Since the coming of Christ, God's covenant people are no longer a single nation that uses physical force and penalties as means to maintain the community's purity and integrity. How does he make such a conclusion? By redefining terms and by obscuring these new definitions. Purity and integrity are implicitly defined as exclusively personal. The community is defined as exclusively ecclesiastical. This is what his essay is designed to do. Redefine the words without explicitly admitting it. We're under grace, not angels. He offers the most bizarre argument to defend this thesis that I have yet encountered. He offers others, but this deserves special attention. He says that Old Covenant civil law was mediated by angels. When Jesus removed the angels as mediators, he removed Old Covenant civil law. Trust me, he really says this. No, you're right. You should never trust a summary of anything this bizarre. I need to prove it. Quote, Jesus is superior to the angels, the heavenly mediators of the law, Hebrews 1, 1-2 and 18. 
The central passage is Psalm 8, 5-7, which indicates that humanity's subordination to the angels through the angelically mediated law of Moses was only temporary now that Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. End quote. Questions. If the heavenly angels mediated Old Covenant law to national Israel, then which angels mediated the, quote, law of nations, end quote, to all the other nations? And more to the point, now that Jesus has removed the penal sanctions of Old Covenant law because he has removed his heavenly angels, which angels now remain as civil mediators in history? Using which civil laws? We Christians are now under these non-biblical laws in civil affairs. Why did Jesus, as Lord of Lords, transfer such civil authority to fallen angels in New Covenant history? And if He did not transfer such sovereignty to them, then why did He adopt their standards of civil law when He replaced them? But Johnson prudently avoids this line of reasoning, for which we can hardly blame him, given the magnitude of his thesis and the paucity of its argumentation. He also argues that the civil penal sanctions were closely, for example, indissolubly, related to the Old Covenant priesthood and sanctuary. Quote, dot, dot, dot. The Mosaic penal sanctions belonged in the context of the discipline and purity of the covenant community. They pointed toward the exclusion of apostates, whose lives showed contempt for the Lord of the Covenant, from the community of the people of God. End quote. Then what did economic restitution point to? But now this community is defined strictly as the church. Quote, the concern of Hebrews is with an offense that can be committed only by a member of the covenant. Dot, dot, dot. Under the new covenant, the purity of the covenant community is maintained not by physical sanctions, but by spiritual discipline, excommunication, not execution. Dot, 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 end quote. Not to put things too graphically, but what if the state wants to put ritual prostitutes at the foot of our communion tables every Sunday morning. Preposterous? Maybe. Although I seem to remember something about Antiochus's sacrificing pigs in the temple some years back. 1 Maccabees 1.47 What about the purity of the community then? If we define the community as members of the institutional church, then what protects the purity of whatever goes on inside its four walls? If Johnson should suggest that we Christians could then appeal to, quote, natural laws, end quote, protection of private property, enforced under which angels is mediation. Then I have another question. What if the civil government allows a nationally franchised, for-profit, ritual prostitution center across the street from the local church? What then? Silence? Silence out of the respect for the epistle to the Hebrews? All right. I am using hyperbole. I will stop for a moment or two. Analogous question. What if the government allows a nationally franchised, for-profit abortion clinic across the street from the local church? Now I am being realistic. No exaggeration here, except possibly for zoning law considerations. What then? Silence? Silence out of respect for the epistle to the Hebrews? It is time to end the silence at Westminster. But judicial agnosticism leads directly to silence on such controversial issues as these. It leads to a muddled confession. Who gets the children? Johnson, for some reason, skips over the non-capital penal sections. In short, he ignores the Old Testament's fundamental principle of civil justice, victims' rights. Let me pose this all-too-familiar problem. A Christian couple splits up. 
who should get legal custody of the children. In Victorian England, the husband automatically did. The authorities assumed that the wife would then be less likely to leave, and so would the husband. Wives always became the victims of adulterous husbands. Since the beginning of the 20th century, mothers in the United States are almost automatically awarded custody of children under age 14. The wife leaves, taking the children, or the husband leaves, leaving the children. This has created what Nicholas Davidson has called America's greatest social catastrophe, life without father. What does the Bible teach? The victimized spouse should get custody of the children permanently, plus all the assets owned by the couple as a legal unit. This is divorce by execution, either physical execution or covenantal separation, where the state refuses to execute adulterers or the victim refuses to demand the death penalty. But Johnson denies that biblical civil sanctions apply in New Testament times. So, let us say that the wife leaves. If she is the victim, she has not awarded the total assets of the couple. She is almost immediately impoverished by the divorce. The statistics tell us by about 70% of her total wealth in the first year. This is an economic disaster for a victimized wife. If she is guilty of leaving without a valid biblical reason, she probably keeps the children anyway, which is covenantally disastrous for the children. Johnson may choose to argue that the guilty party will surely be excommunicated. As far as the children are concerned, so what? The point is, the state must adopt some standard of guilty and innocent. It must enforce some system of sanctions. The question is, which standard? What sanctions? Johnson and his colleagues are remarkably silent about this obvious application of the principle of theonomy. All the nuthetic counseling in the world will not overcome one basic problem. If the state's laws of divorce are not biblical, then they are anti-biblical. This is Van Til's legacy. There is no neutrality. But the present faculty of Westminster refuses to adopt this legacy as its own. Better to adopt pluralism for civil law and pietism and suffering for the Christian heart. In short, they have adopted this principle of civil justice, covenant breakers' rights. Pietism Revisited Johnson proclaims the, the traditional pietist's concept of purity, the personal serenity of one who has attained moral purity in the midst of a cultural sewer. This is the, quote, sewer serenity, end quote, doctrine of progressive personal sanctification according to Ed Norton, 1950s, and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, 1990s. It sure sounds like Eastern mysticism to me. But, then again, pietism always has been innately mystical. The pietist does not usually want to sound like a cultural retreatist, so he adopts the language of a higher calling, a higher self-discipline. He says things like this, quote, The punishments of the Mosaic Law belong clearly to the old order, and thus they point ahead to the higher privilege and the resultant higher accountability of the new covenant order established in Jesus. End quote. Let me get this straight. By denying any responsibility on the part of Christians for pursuing biblical standards in civil government, we elevate their calling. By eliminating Christians' judicial accountability in history, we raise their accountability. By drastically restricting the arena of our covenantal conflict with covenant breakers, we become more accountable to Jesus. If this sounds to you like the old liberal line about the promised spiritual uplift attained from a debunking 
of the veracity of the Bible, calling its stories, quote, myths, end quote, and then proclaiming myth as, quote, a higher mode of understanding, end quote, then you're with me. This is exactly what Johnson's line sounds like. In short, King of Dead Kings and Lord of Dead Lords. It is clear, he writes, quote, that the author to the Hebrews is not answering the question of how to set up a Christian political system, which interests many North American Christians today. His readers were in no position to need or to implement whatever counsel he might have offered on such a topic, end quote. Now then, Mr. Reader, do you ever read the epistle to the Hebrews? You do. Well then, I guess you must conclude one of two things. One, you had better forget about such earthly political concerns. Or two, the epistle's author never intended for you to read it. It is quite clear that Johnson wants you to take the first option. After all, he has. So have most of his colleagues at Westminster, and on every other seminary campus. They hate the idea of biblical civil sanctions, and they hate its corollary, Christendom. Why? Because they hate responsibility outside the cloister. Richard B. Gaffin I have said my piece in chapter 7. I will say this for Gaffin. He tries to defend Shepherd. After Gaffin retires, or Westminster East goes bankrupt, perhaps he will write a book about the whole ugly affair. If I am still around, I will publish it. William S. Barker Now we get to the practical part of theonomy, a reformed critique, where the exegetical rubber hits the political road. We come at last to pluralism. Barker asks the question, quote, is pluralism biblical? End quote. Since this issue has not been dealt with exegetically since Roger Williams first propounded it, Williams appealed exclusively to natural law. I had hoped for something more to the point than three pages devoted to the coin in Jesus' render unto Caesar confrontation. But before Barker gets to the coin incident, he goes right to the appropriate historical source for his theology, the 1789 statement of the Presbyterian Church of America. Quote, preliminary principles, end quote. This was written the year after the Church had rewritten the original Westminster Confession of Faith. That 1788 Ecclesiastical Assembly did not justify its actions exegetically. The next year it passed the, quote, preliminary principles, end quote. It also sent a letter of congratulations to President Washington, echoing Washington's Masonic rhetoric on the close tie between religion in general but not Christianity specifically, and public virtue. The address announced, quote, Public virtue is the most certain means of public felicity, and religion is the surest basis of virtue. We therefore esteem it a peculiar happiness to behold in our chief magistrate a steady, uniform, avowed friend of the Christian religion, and who on the most public and solemn occasions devoutly acknowledges the government of divine providence, end quote. The address then identified the role of the Presbyterian Church in the American political religion. Quote, we shall consider ourselves as doing an acceptable service to God in our profession when we contribute to render men sober, honest, and industrious citizens and the obedient subjects of a lawful government. End quote. Here is common ground religion with a vengeance. The Church of Jesus Christ is reduced to the equivalent of a cheering section at a football game in which it may not morally or legally compete. It is clear why Barker appeals to the 1789 position paper of the Presbyterian Church, 
rather than to the declarations of the Westminster Assembly. Barker gives an example of the illegitimacy of the state's interference with religion. Quote, the requirement of prayer or acts of worship in the public schools, end quote. Fine and dandy. We theonomists agree. So did Machen. The two fundamental educational questions that the theonomist raises are these. 1. By what biblical standard can anyone defend the legitimacy of state-funded, state-controlled education? 2. What has happened to the educational responsibilities of the family? These questions do not even occur to Dr. Barker, or if they do, he suppresses them. Rushduni asked them as long ago as 1961 in his book, Intellectual Schizophrenia. He pursued the theme in his Messianic Character of American Education, 1963. But there are no references to Rushduni in Barker's chapter. Barker says that the state should not promote a specific religion, namely Christianity. We theonomists agree. We maintain that civil law is used to suppress evil public acts, not promote the general welfare, including the general religious welfare. The state is to bring God's specified negative sanctions, but this is not the focus of Barker's essay. He wants the state to promote the general welfare. He just does not want it to promote Christianity. The Stranger in the Land The judicial question I raised in political polytheism is this. Is the non-Christian in a Christian nation to be a citizen or a stranger in the land? This assumes that the civil government is a covenantal organization that is lawfully established by a self-maledictory oath under the God of the Bible. Put another way, is it biblically legitimate for Christians to do what the state of Israel has done and what Islamic nations have done, covenant nationally with an identified God? If so, then should the non-Christian be given the right to exercise political sanctions against Christians? Should he have the right to vote? A stranger in ancient Israel did not serve as a judge, although he received all the benefits of living in the land. The political question is this. By what biblical standard is the pagan to be granted the right to bring political sanctions against God's people? We recognize that unbelievers are not to vote in church elections. Why should they to be allowed to vote in civil elections in a covenanted Christian nation? Which judicial standards will they impose? By what other standard than the Bible? But Barker does not refer to political polytheism. He does not address any of these questions. He has made his stand. No covenant to nations and no restriction of the franchise. This is political pluralism, and he insists that it is biblical. Natural Law Then whose law should reign in civil government? Not God's Bible-revealed law. We are back to natural law theory, just where it all began under Roger Williams in the 1640s. But no one wants to say this openly, since they all suspect the truth. There is no such thing as neutral natural law. So they do not tell us what law order they want. It is an open question. It is an open question that they do not intend to close. They remain judicially agnostic. They say yes to Van Til, and then they say no to the inescapable political implications of his position. Here is my case against Westminster. Proclaiming Van Til, they reject Van Til. So did Van Til, but he wisely avoided discussing politics. His successors at Westminster do not. None is more forthright in his rejection than Barker. For this forthrightness he should be praised. He makes his position clear. Quote, 
If it is indeed not our king's intention for the civil authority to enforce the first great commandment, then among the five alternatives that Bonson offers as possible standards for civil law, natural revelation, as indeed, quote, a sin-obscured edition of the same law of God, end quote, quote, suppressed in unrighteousness by the sinner, end quote, is that to which we must appeal, on the basis of our own knowledge of special revelation, and with the intent of bringing more of the unbelieving population to repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way Paul operated in the Roman Empire and the way any Christian must operate in a missionary situation, end quote. Is this how Paul used natural revelation? Not at Mars Hill. He used some references in Greek poetry to tell them that everything they had learned about God from natural revelation was wrong. God would put up with their nonsense no longer. Then he warned them of the coming judgment, quote, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he had ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. Acts 17:29-32. God would no longer wink at such ignorance, Paul announced. But Barker wants to make such cursed ignorance the basis of our appeal to the natural man until such time as we Christians are a majority, for example, in a, quote, non-missionary, end quote, situation. Therefore, natural law is that to which we must appeal. There it is, in black and white. This is Westminster's confession in the words of the book's co-editor. Barker states, quote, this is the way Paul operated in the Roman Empire and the way any Christian must operate in a minority situation, end quote. Let us explore this, quote, minority situation, end quote, idea. Question, to what should Christians appeal when we are no longer a minority? This distinctly post-millennial question is the one that Barker and his pluralist and amillennialist colleagues steadfastly refuse to answer in print. If he says, quote, theonomy, end quote, then he has given up his pluralist theology. Christian pluralism then loses its status as a serious political philosophy. It becomes merely a tactic, a pragmatic con job to fool the covenant breakers until such time as we Christians get the votes. On the other hand, if he says, quote, natural law, end quote, then he is trapped. His appeal to our present minority status as the basis of our need to appeal to natural law is revealed as a rhetorical con job to fool the followers of Van Til. So, he is trying to fool either the pagans or the Vantilians. I think it is the latter. My assessment of his real judicial commitment is this. He has no intention of ever appealing to the theonomy. He is a defender of natural law theory. With respect to our present minority status and our supposed need to appeal to natural law when trying to persuade pagans, it is just another case of sic et non. Our minority status is supposedly permanent, so natural law is to be our permanent guide. Why go on with this? But I will. We need specific, detailed answers. Whose version of natural law? Not in the U.S. Constitution, surely, which places all judicial sovereignty in, quote, we the people, end quote, but none in a higher law. Where have these principles been stated and defended? What societies have adopted this natural law code? Have they prospered? Which Bible verses allow us to transfer such judicial sovereignty to a common ground system 
of jurisprudence. We get no answers. Year after year, decade after decade, century after century, we get no answers from the Christian defenders of natural law theory. We just get accusations that those who object are a bunch of theocrats. And we all know what Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt thought of theocrats. Barker tells us that he relies on the writings of Paul Woolley and Edmund P. Clowney, an honest admission. This came as no surprise to me. John R. Meether I reserve my comments for chapter 10. I will only note here that he ends his essay with an appeal to the political views of Edmund P. Clowney. This was predictable, since Meether has a degree from Gordon College. Gordon Conwell Light Timothy J. Keller See Chapter 10 He, too, relies on the insights of Edmund Clowney. Keller has a degree from Gordon Conwell. D. Claire Davis At least Dr. Davis is not from Gordon Conwell. He is from Wheaton College, as both student and professor. Dr. Davis writes, quote, a challenge to theonomy, end quote. He praises theonomists for providing specific details about how the Bible can be applied to modern society. He alone, in the book, mentions Roe versus Wade, and he identifies it as paganism in action. He says that, quote, Christians have had to rethink what they mean by tolerance, end quote. I'm not sure what Christians he has in mind. If we should not tolerate abortion, then on what judicial basis should we oppose it? Biblical law or natural law? He asks, quote, Is it impossible to harmonize the theonomic vision of a biblical society and the New Testament picture of a persecuted church? Not necessarily, end quote. This is the resolution of Sik et Non, the great maybe. He says we must exercise creedal humility. Did the original Westminster divines exercise creedal humility? He warns that there will be ecclesiastical divisions, as there have been in the past, if any group presses too hard. Didn't the Westminster divines understand this? In short, so what? He raises some major questions. Quote, what actions should evangelical groups today take regarding civil disobedience over abortion? For example, Operation Rescue. Should churches discipline those who encourage disobedience of the state's trespass laws? Should they discipline those who refuse to take part in significant action designed to uphold God's law? If the answer to one of those questions is yes, then the evangelical church will be just as divided as it was by abolition and the Civil War. End quote. If only this were the case. The evangelical church does not care. A church that does not care does not raise questions like these. It defers consideration of questions like these. It does what President James Buchanan did about slavery and the pressures for secession, 1857-61. to Nothing. The church just wants to be left alone in its slumber. In this sense, it is a seminary writ large. But at least Davis asks some good questions. He just never offers any answers to them. This is the dilemma of judicial agnosticism. It provides no answers. Division in the ranks Davis understands that theonomy is a divisive issue. If we theonomists continue to argue that ours is the only correct view, it will be impossible for others in the creedal churches to work with us. Why? It all depends on how we press our case. If we teach, convert the best and the brightest to our position, and wait for God's covenantal sanctions to transform people's thinking, what is wrong with this? We have time. We are post-millennialists. We can afford to wait. A few victories and pessimillennialists will switch. Pessimillennialism exists primarily to justify failure. When Christianity starts to win, 
pessimillennialism will be abandoned by younger activists. This is how paradigm shifts work. Theonomists can buy their time. He observes, quote, Theonomists appear to be committed to conservative politics. If that is so, is theonomy really the political position supported by the Bible? He does not answer his question, of course. If he were to say yes, he would have to account for the long presence of his mentor, Paul Woolley, on the faculty. If he had said no, he would alienate a lot of donors, since few church members and pews support the political ideas of Paul Woolley. So he prudently refuses to answer. We have seen this strategy before. Quote, and when he has come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if ye tell me, I, in like wise, will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did you not believe him? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people. For all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Matthew twenty-one, twenty-three 23-27. Davis goes on and on, asking good questions and offering no answers. The reader can read all this for himself. He is an exercise in constructive politeness. It is the very incarnation of judicial agnosticism. I appreciate his politeness, I suppose, but it really does not get us anywhere. There is one question, the question that he refuses to ask. Quote, Isn't it time for Westminster to offer Bonson a job so as to let him get our students to start thinking about these real-world questions? End quote. That question he does not dare to ask. His colleagues are afraid of real-world questions and answers. Westminster has been avoiding them since the death of Machen in 1937. And so, all his questions are just a form of academic shadowboxing. They never get us to the point of taking action. Academic questions seldom do. That is why they get asked. Conclusion I still have six articles to go. Three historical, chapter 9, and three abominable, chapter 10. But if you have followed me so far... You see my line of reasoning. The enemy's critics do not tell us the answer to the crucial judicial question, quote, if not biblical law, then what? End quote. I think it is legitimate to ask, why did it take them five years to produce this molehill? And why did they begin the project 12 years after Bonson was granted his THM? The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.